Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicNPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Danielle Nirenberg, who is co-founder of Food Tank, the food think tank. Today we will discuss how family farming can feed the world. Danielle is an expert on sustainable agriculture and food issues. She recently spent two years traveling to more than 35 countries across Sub-Saharan Africa, Asia, and Latin America, meeting with farmers and farmers' groups, scientists and researchers, policymakers and government leaders, students and academics, and journalists, collecting their thoughts on what's working to help alleviate hunger and poverty, while also protecting the environment. Her knowledge of global agricultural issues has been cited in 3,000 major publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, the International Herald Tribune, the Washington Post, BBC, and The Guardian in the United Kingdom. Danielle served as the director of the Food and Agriculture Program at the World Watch Institute. She also worked for two years as a Peace Corps volunteer in the Dominican Republic. Danielle, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This is a topic that I think touches everyone in some way or another, but that perhaps many of us in business or academia or government don't think about on a daily basis because we're so busy with the business of whatever it is that we're doing in our daily lives. When we talk about sustainable agriculture, what are we talking about? Can you help us get started with that? Sure. When we're talking about sustainable agriculture, and there are several different definitions used by groups around the world, what we're really talking about is agriculture that gives back, uh, that doesn't deplete natural resources, that enhances soil, that uh, generates enough income for farmers and food entrepreneurs to live in a healthy and sustainable way, uh, agriculture that helps mitigate climate change by sequestering carbon in soils, and, and ultimately agriculture that nourishes people. Um, you know, we, we, we do a really good job in the world of, of filling people up with calories, but we're not always good at nourishing them. So at least for me and for Food Tank, the Food Think Tank, sustainable agriculture uh, is, is a form of producing food that produces nutritious food, which again is something that we forget about. In the United States, we're looking at a population of, last time I looked, about 312 million people with varying degrees of access to nourishing foods and varying degrees of knowledge about agriculture and food and nutrition. What would you say are the major challenges that we in the United States are facing when it comes to agriculture and food issues? Well, I mean, despite sort of the recent interest in in local food and the interest in farmers' markets over the last 10 or 15 years, many of us, uh, you know, especially people in their 20s and 30s, lack the culinary skills to cook the food that they're buying at farmers' markets. Uh, my generation of, of women didn't really grow up taking home economics classes. Our, 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 our male counterparts, it never even occurred to them to take home economics. And so there, you know, we grew up with parents who were working, you know, both parents were working or they were working a couple of different jobs. So many of us didn't learn how to cook things. We don't know proper portion sizes. We don't know how to, to cook things that don't come out of a box or a bag. And so I think, for many people, that's a major problem that we just don't, we don't know how to prepare food. We, we like to eat good food, but we, we don't know where it comes from and, and we don't know how to prepare it. The, the other major challenge I see, especially in the United States, is the, the epidemic of obesity. Uh, over the last 30 years, uh, obesity ha- has really doubled across the world. We have more people who are overweight or obese than ever before. And, our healthcare system is is really ill-equipped to handle the challenges of of treating more people uh, who are overweight and, and the the problems that come along with it, including type two diabetes, hypertension, uh, gout, uh, cardiovascular disease, and a whole range of other maladies. So those are really you know uh, the the two major things that that stand out that we we don't know how to eat. And, and when we do eat, we eat too much. 
And what would you say is the link between obesity and not knowing how to prepare food, not knowing how to eat, and sustainable agriculture? Is there a direct correlation between the two? Well, I mean, I think the major issue is that our food system is broken. Uh, we we don't produce the right kinds of foods. We over we overeat. We overproduce things like. Uh, starchy staple crops like rice, uh, wheat, and corn, and we don't tend to produce as much of very nutritious foods like indigenous grains or perennial crops or uh, fruits and vegetables. And so all of these things are related because we're not providing uh, eaters or consumers with the, the ingredients, if you will, that they need to have a healthy life. Sustainable agriculture systems, on the other hand, produce a diversity of crops. Uh, they're not reliant on monocultures of corn or, or soy. They're, uh, again, giving back to uh, the soil by replenishing nutrients in soils. They're uh, protecting water supplies. Uh, they tend to uh, produce uh uh, crops that provide, you know, uh, uh, habitat for birds and wildlife and beneficial insects. So it, it's really just a whole different way of doing things. And it's not so different from the agriculture that has been practiced in the United States since, you know, the beginning of, of our country's history. What has happened over the last, you know, 50 or 60 years is we've become very dependent on uh agrochemicals, pesticides, insecticides, herbicides. These things were developed uh, mostly in the 1950s and 60s to help uh, farmers, particularly in the developing world, uh, increase production uh, in places like South Asia and Latin America. People were, were not able to produce enough food, and they, and they were starving. And those uh, uh, inputs were seen as as a temporary measure to help farmers get back on their feet and to help uh, alleviate uh, uh, hunger throughout the world. What has happened is uh, we, we've become in, almost entirely dependent on those inputs that are uh, highly resource intensive. They're, they use a lot of fossil fuels to produce and, and to transport across the world. And instead of using them, you know, as medicine for when um, farmers really need them, we've, we've grown very dependent on them and we use them constantly. And so I think that's where we've seen a lot of the problems that have come from modern agriculture, whether it's uh, uh, overuse and misuse of pesticides that can lead to illness in people or the proliferation of, of highly resistant pests and disease or uh, some of the, uh, the other problems uh, that come from agricultural practices that aren't self-sustaining, uh, depleted soils, desertification, uh, and even climate change as a result of, of poor agricultural methods. Does most of the agricultural land in the United States reside in the hands of big companies today? Can you give us any idea of what that breakdown is? I mean, it, it's hard... Uh, it, it, it's hard to break that down, and, and I'm not comfortable citing any uh, industry, you know, as responsible or or to blame for uh, uh, these problems. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, family-owned uh, farms have uh, been consolidated in the United States. They're, they're, they're very big farms uh, where uh, where the farmers themselves have sort of become serfs on their own land. Uh, they're they're in contract farming uh, relationships with some of these big companies, whether it's uh, Cargill or or, or uh, Smithfield or others. And so, you know, what, what we have in in this country is uh, uh, agriculture that's very dependent on monocultures. We grow a lot of corn. We grow a lot of soy. Uh, and when the drought occurred in the United States last year, more than half of the counties in the U.S. were considered – uh, disaster areas because of the drought. Farmers uh, were losing crops uh, and not able to sustain what they were growing. Uh, ranchers have had to sell off a lot of their herds. Uh, and, and so we've seen a lot of devastation because of this dependence on, you know, a, a one, you know, breed of livestock or one monoculture of, of soy or corn. So uh, I think that's the bigger issue whether than, you know, uh, companies are, are controlling agriculture in the United States. It's that 
our our system is is highly vulnerable. We we haven't created a resilient food system here in the United States. Where do issues like genetically modified foods come into the definition of sustainable agriculture? Are they considered part of sustainable agriculture, or do they fall outside of that definition? Well, from my perspective, you know, the the reason that uh, biotechnology and genetically modified crops were were uh, the reason they were began to be researched and invested in uh, was to help alleviate hunger and poverty throughout the world. They promised really high yields without as many inputs, and uh, you know the ability to to reduce labor for farmers. Um, from my experience uh, traveling all over the world, including in the United States, and talking to farmers everywhere, is that GMO crops haven't lived up to these promises. And instead, they've they've been very expensive. They've uh, not really reduced labor for farmers. They haven't increased incomes, and they haven't reduced the use of inputs. And there are, you know, multiple studies that that say the same thing. Um, there might be potential in genetically modified crops. I haven't seen it, uh, and and I'm very skeptical. And and I'll tell you why I'm skeptical. We know the the kind of agricultural systems that work. Uh, in in 2008, uh, a landmark report that was initially uh, uh, invested in by the World Bank found that agroecological solutions, not the silver bullet technologies like GMO crops, were really the answer to helping increase production uh, across the world while also protecting the environment. And, and so, you know, things like intercropping or agroforestry or uh, managed grazing practices, we know that these things work, and yet we, they don't get the same sort of investment that these silver bullet technologies uh, like GMOs get. And, and I think that's a huge problem. You know, we, we are, again, very highly dependent on resource-intensive agriculture. Uh, the, the agriculture that exists in the United States today is highly dependent on fossil fuels. And as, as fossil fuel prices uh, uh, continue to go up, uh, it's going to make our agriculture more expensive and more difficult to do. And so the more that we can really go forward by going back and revisiting some of the practices that are environmentally sustainable that farmers have used for generations or for even centuries, the better able we'll be able to withstand some of the challenges that we face in the future in food and agriculture. Is the United States on solid ground when it comes to sustainable agriculture and food supplies? Where are we Say, if 100% is the maximum, where does the United States fall under that spectrum? You said that there are problems with monoculture and the, there are a number of issues with the system. Where would you say between 1 and 100 or 1 and 110, whatever method you want to help us understand, where would we as a country, the United States, fall when it comes to sustainable agriculture and food supply for our own use? Well, you know, as I said before, we produce more than enough food in the United States uh, to, to feed everyone. We produce more than enough food in the world to, to feed everyone who's alive today. The problems uh, lie in distribution. They lie in, again, the, the nutritional quality of that food and whether it really nourishes people. You know, the sustainable agriculture in the United States, I mean, we're, we're, we're sort of at a, a negative despite the recent growth uh, and and an interest in, in sustainable agricultural practices, it's still a very small minority of the farming that is done in, in the United States. And we, you know, again, our, our, our agriculture is highly dependent on, on fossil fuel resources. So, you know, the, the, the growth in farmers' markets, you know, over the last decade has been uh, very exciting. There are more than 8,000 farmers' markets that take place in the United States every week. Uh, and, and so that's very encouraging. And most of those farmers are, are smaller scale farmers who are using either organic or sustainable agriculture practices to grow their crops. But to make sure that every, you know, community has access to, to locally grown and sustainably produced food, we're still a long way from that. Uh, many urban areas in this country 
uh, are considered food deserts because the only access that consumers have to, to food is convenience stores or liquor stores or fast food restaurants. And, and maybe people don't have access to healthy grains or uh, fresh produce. So we really need to address the issue of access in, in this country when it comes to uh, availability of, of locally grown and, and sustainable food products. I read a book recently that talked about the fact that most people in the country did, in fact, not have access to good quality produce. And it makes me think, for example, that they've opened a what is called a green market uh, near where I live. And when we went to visit the green market, quote unquote, we found that, in fact, there are very few greens available for sale at the market. They're selling costume jewelry, clothing, pet supplies, a variety of items, but there's actually only one produce stand to speak of. And most of the produce they sell there, they're reselling, and it's not in very good shape. So if this is what it's like in other places, it makes sense what the author of the book was saying, that it's, it's challenging for many people to access sustainable agriculture products. Would you agree? As I said, I think in many parts of this country, it's very hard for people to access affordable, healthy, uh, and, and fresh produce. And, and that's a real problem. When, when people don't have access to food, we can't punish them for, you know, becoming overweight or getting some of the, the diseases that we discussed before, whether it's type 2 diabetes or cardiovascular disease, uh, you know, uh, in this country, poor people and overweight people are often blamed for, you know, being those things, for being poor, for being fat. And and we've created a system where it's, it's hard for poor people to be anything but overweight because they don't have access to healthy food. Looking outside our borders, you have traveled widely. You have spent a lot of time on the ground talking to people in all walks of life. Who has it right? Who is successful with this formula of sustainable agriculture and managing food issues adequately? Which country or countries would you cite as examples and why? There's unfortunately no, no one country that's absolutely doing it right. What, what inspires me and what gives me hope about the food system is that the communities all over Sub-Saharan Africa, all over Latin America, all over Southern Asia that are really working hard with very little investment or funding from the funding and donor communities to implement uh, sustainable practices, you know, in their communities. For example, I had uh, the opportunity to visit the Tigray region of Ethiopia uh, a few years ago. Uh, Ethiopia, as, as most of your listeners know, is, is best known probably for famine. Uh, we all remember the, the images of, of, of malnourished uh, children and babies with swollen stomachs uh, the, from the 1980s, but famine has never really gone away in, in Ethiopia. Uh, uh, depending on, on the, the economic conditions and the weather conditions, people there are, are often at risk of, of of famine. Um, uh, just this last year, 12 million uh, people in sub-Saharan Africa in the Sahel region were at risk of famine because of, of drought. Uh, but in the community I visited, uh, farmers are working with a local NGO called Prola Nova and the Institute for Sustainable Development to uh, implement water uh, conserving strategies, uh, building a uh, hand-powered wells to irrigate their crops. And, and one of the, the farmers I met with is, um, uh, he considers himself a farmer priest. His name is Cass Malete Abreja, and he um, worked with these NGOs to develop uh, what he calls a, a water lifting strategy in, in his, on his farm. Um, he uh, built some hand-powered uh, well uh, pumps for his well that even his children could use. He uh, dug uh, farther than uh, most farmers are willing to, to dig, about 12 meters down, until he finally hit water. 
his neighbors and his wife all thought he was crazy and that he would never hit water. But when he did, he was really able to to transform his farm. He was only growing teff uh, before he built the well. Uh, teff is a, a grain that's indigenous uh, to Ethiopia, um, and it's it's used to make injera, which is a bread that that's commonly eaten there. Um, but after the the well was implemented, he was able to grow a variety of crops, including vegetables and fruit trees, um, and and sell those uh, products at market and also to other farmers. Um, he's become an example of success in his community, an example of innovation and entrepreneurial uh, skills, and and he's teaching farmer other farmers that he you know live near him these same skills. Um, and, and, and not just around uh, uh, water lifting strategies, but also around soil conservation, uh, intercropping, and a whole variety of other sustainable agriculture methods. And, you know, I could give, you know, a million other examples of, of farmers I've met with who are doing, you know, uh, quote, unquote, the right thing. They're finding ways, again, without funding and without a lot of support from their governments, to, to really implement things that are working. Um, one, one other thing that really gives me hope around agriculture in, in parts of the developing world is a, a real focus on youth and cultivating the next generation of farmers and agricultural entrepreneurs. Uh, in Uganda, for example, I met with a project that's called Project DISC, or Developing Innovations in School Cultivation. And this uh, project works with about 17 uh, different schools uh, in a community about an hour and a half outside of Kampala, Uganda, the capital of the country. Um, and they've uh, done what you see a lot of, of schools around the United States and around the world doing. They've implemented school garden programs that uh, help kids learn about where food comes from. But what's different about the Project DISC gardens is that the gardens are, one, growing uh, local and indigenous foods. Uh, they're growing foods that are, are native to this region of Uganda. What has happened in sub-Saharan Africa over the last 20 or 30 years is that there's been a, a real increase in uh, food imports. Uh, uh, in, in the early uh, 1980s, uh, four, uh, Africans got around 4% of their food from imports. Today, that figure is about 16%. Uh, so this increase has caused folks to really look down on what uh, uh, are, are often thought as poor people's foods or the local foods. Sometimes they're even called weeds. So the Project Disc Gardens are helping reestablish um, uh, a real appreciation for, for local foods among children and, and, and showing them that these foods are not only very nutritious, but they're also very resilient to drought, pests, and disease. And that these children, um, when they taste them, they're very delicious. And, and again, you know, there's been this focus on, on sort of looking down on, on what's local to the communities and, and focusing on you know, the sort of more modern foods. So establishing, you know, for these children that these foods are not just uh, good for them, but they're delicious too has been very important. And then the final thing that I think is important about the work that Project DISC does is that they're also teaching children that they can make money from agriculture, that by selling these crops, particularly in urban communities where there's a high demand, that they don't have to be, you know, poor farmers like their parents, that they can really um, add value to, to crops and make juices and jams and spices and a whole variety of other value-added products that can uh, make them money and they can feel proud about the work that they're doing. What would you say are the pressing issues within the space of sustainable agriculture if we look at the world from a global perspective? I mean, I think the most pressing issue is that there's been little or no funding for agroecological or sustainable practices. When you look at where the funding goes from most of the big foundations or from governments themselves, 
that very little is going to agroecological practices and very little is going to small-scale farmers. Uh, under the Comprehensive African Agriculture Development Program, or CADEP, uh, only a handful of nations in, in sub-Saharan Africa are devoting 10% or more of their national budgets to, to agriculture. And these are countries whose GDP depends almost entirely on agriculture, and yet they're they're doing little to invest in in the smallholder farms and the sustainable practices that can really benefit uh, not just their their uh, GDP but also the nutritional status of of their communities. And so I think this is a real issue. How can we convince governments and the funding and donor communities to invest in the things that again we know already work? Why? Is there no funding, Danielle? Can you share some insights on that? I mean, I think the the major reason is that, you know, the the small-scale farmers don't have fancy websites. The small NGOs that work with them don't get a a lot of attention. The the programs that get the attention are a little bit more flashy. Again, they're these silver bullets that sound great. I mean, when you read about some of the technologies, like biotechnology – they're very interesting. They're very sexy. And, it, it, you know, as an investor or as a government or as a, you know, a business leader, you, I, I can see the tendency to want to invest in those things, at least in the short term, because they, they sound good. They look good. Um, it's much harder to get folks to, to invest in, you know, 200 million small farmers in, in across the world. We really need the the they they don't have that good PR campaign to to get folks interested in what they're doing and I think that's a real issue that we need to sort of change the dialogue change the conversation show these funders what really works and again it's not the silver bullets it's the the community by community development projects they have a real uh, chance to be replicated and scaled up on a, on a wide scale. And I think that's the real sort of uh, problem that, that investors don't get. They don't realize the potential. They don't realize the, the entrepreneurial skills that a lot of these communities and a lot of these farmers have. And, and once they are able to recognize that, I, I think the payoffs, you know, in terms of alleviating hunger and poverty around the world, we have at least a billion people who go to bed hungry each night. Uh, we have 1.2 billion people who live in extreme poverty. We're not going to make good, uh, you know, economic development choices until we invest in those folks, until we invest in the people who, who need our help the most. You shared a couple of examples in Ethiopia and Uganda, and you've talked about sub-Saharan Africa and the, the challenges of uh, maybe competing with the silver bullet concepts. Would you say that game viewing and hunting are big competitors for funding because they're bringing crowds and money is driving a lot of changes in places in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, For example, some of the countries are relocating their population to the cities so that they have more land for game viewing and game hunting. What, if any, impact have you seen from that perspective? I, I, I'm not sure I, I know about any communities that have been relocated for game hunting. Communities in, in places like uh, Mozambique have definitely been relocated. Uh, communities have been relocated as a result of land grabs where uh, agricultural land is sold to uh, other governments or, or big multinational companies so that those uh, companies or those governments can grow food on, on what was previously land owned by small-scale farmers. But your question about wildlife and poaching is definitely a serious one. Uh, many farmers in, in places like sub-Saharan Africa, whether it's uh, Malawi or Zambia or, or other uh, places where um, wildlife is, is seen as a tourist attraction, you know, the, the benefits from the economic benefits from poaching have often outweighed 
uh, the, the economic benefits of farming. And so one very interesting project that I was able to visit in, in Zambia is, uh, community markets for conservation. And, and the founders of that project found that when, you know, they were trying to prevent farmers from poaching, uh, elephants and other wildlife, that the farmers said to them, you know, first of all, these, these elephants trample my agricultural land. They, they, they trample my crops. And second of all, I can make a lot more money killing these elephants than I can by farming. And so the, what, what this organization has been able to do is offer, um, a way to incorporate farmers in protecting wildlife. They train, uh, farmers to be wildlife, uh, uh, conservation agents. Uh, they pay them a, a, a fee for helping protect wildlife while at the same time helping these farmers build a solid agricultural business. Uh, uh, Community Markets for Conservation has been able to develop its own uh, wildlife friendly organic brand that is sold in, in urban markets uh, across sub-Saharan Africa, but particularly in Zambia and South Africa. They're growing organic rice and other products, uh, including honey, to sell under this, this brand. These products go for a little bit higher price, but uh, 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 urban residents who, who care about wildlife uh, and who care about farmers are willing to pay um, this this price for them, uh, foreigners who, who visit, uh, you know, learn about these products and buy them and order them from the organization. So it's been an effective way for for farmers to realize the importance um, of of these uh, this wildlife to sort of the the history and culture of their communities, and also be able to make money off of it without having to to poach. So there there are several projects like that around sub-Saharan Africa, including the good work that the Jane Goodall Institute has done in uh, protecting chimps and also helping farmers um, not only improve nutrition and incomes, but also gain access to things like uh, family planning services so that they can plan their families uh, and, and not feel um, compelled to have more children than they actually want. So there, there are so many examples uh, of ways to combine the benefits of, of agriculture with uh, protecting wildlife. You mentioned organic produce. Would you tell us how that is defined and what role it's playing in sustainable agriculture? Again, you know, the, the, there are several definitions for organic. Uh, the USDA in the United States has its own definition um, and basically involves not using uh, chemical fertilizers and pesticides and, and other artificial inputs. Um, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, farmers are, are growing organic produce not necessarily because they want to, but because they have to. They, they don't, they simply can't afford expensive artificial fertilizers or or other inputs. Um, uh, so really finding ways to make sure that folks can grow enough food uh, uh, using organic practices is, is paramount uh, in places like sub-Saharan Africa uh, because that's the only way people are growing food. Um, and, you know, several studies have been um, – uh, completed over the last years by, uh, last several years by Jules Pretty, uh, by the University of Michigan and others that really show that, uh, by intensifying organic agriculture, the yields can be equal to or even greater than those of conventional agriculture. So it, it doesn't mean, you know, growing organically is often thought of as, you know, something that's kind of what, uh, you know, your your neighbor does or the you know what hippies used to do in the 1960s and and what we're seeing is that organic agriculture can actually uh rival the the yields of of conventional agriculture and can be uh, a significant way for farmers to uh especially in places like the United States where there's more of a demand for organic foods to really increase their incomes one of the things that you mentioned in the materials that you shared with me was that there is a gender gap when it comes to agriculture. Would you share some information about that? 
Absolutely. Uh, uh, across the world, women contribute anywhere from 20 to 80 percent of the agricultural labor force. Uh, in places like sub-Saharan Africa, women are about half of the farmers uh, in, in the region. Uh, but unfortunately, women often lack access to credit or banking and financial services. They lack access to land ownership. They lack access to education. They lack access to extension services. Often extension agents are men, and they will only talk to, to other male farmers. And, and uh, overall, women lack access to, to the inputs that they need to be successful farmers. Uh, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization has found that if women had the same access to resources, agricultural resources, as men, that global uh, hunger could be reduced by anywhere from 12 to 17 percent. Uh, women are often uh, both farmers as well as cooks and caretakers for their families. So the more resources uh, that are available to them and the better uh, access they have to those resources, the, the more they'll be able to do in terms of increasing their own incomes as well as nourishing their own families. Uh, in the, in the United States, the, the fastest growing group of farmers is, is women, uh, young women and, and women who've been running uh, their own family farms for a long time. So, again, making sure that those women have the access to the resources they need, whether it's markets or credit or loans, is, is really uh, an important um, investment for, for folks to be making. Looking at the issues from the perspective of the everyday life that we talked about earlier, people in their offices, people at work, running to pick up their schools, their, their kids from school, just living their lives, they probably have a tendency to say, yeah, so what? I go to the store and everything I need is available for sale. Why should I care about these issues? How are they relevant to us, to all of us in our lives? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I understand families are busy, but if we really care about sort of not only the health of, of the, uh, the earth and the economy, we should care about the health of our families. And eating more uh, locally grown food, more uh, uh, food that's fresh and, and um uh, not processed, doesn't come from a box or a bag, the, the healthier our families will be. I think, you know, many parents have, have really um, experienced firsthand obesity and overweight epidemic among um, uh, school children. They've seen, you know, kids in their kids' classes uh, becoming more overweight. They've seen that kids aren't exercising as much. So really, you know, teaching your kids from the very beginning the importance of eating well, uh, for their long-term health. I think that's really the best way to, to make people realize how important this issue is. And, you know, and I think, you know, there are so many things that, that people can do in their daily lives. It doesn't mean that everyone has to grow their own food. Um, it, it can mean, you know, shopping at a, a farmer's market occasionally so that you're learning more about where that your food comes from. Uh, you're, that you're talking to local farmers. Uh, you know, Michael Pollan always says, vote with your fork. And we do make choices at least three times a day about what sort of world we want by the food that we're eating. But more than that, I think we also need to vote with our votes. We need to vote for a food system that we believe in. And we need to elect, uh, you know, a Congress that believes in, in supporting small and medium-scale farmers while also making large-scale uh, agriculture more sustainable uh, and, and healthier for the environment and for our communities. So there's a lot of things that people can do without, you know, uh, going back to the land, so to speak. We all have choices to make um, with, with our food dollars, and we can decide how to spend them. People often ask themselves, wonder, do I spend more money, a higher percentage of the budget that I've allocated toward organic foods or should I buy prepared foods, say, from a fast food restaurant because it's easy and it's convenient? 
and then you were talking about obesity and not knowing how to prepare foods. How are those interlinked with sustainable agriculture? How can people learn more about those issues? Because those are the things that relate to everyday people's lives. As you were saying, you have a chance to vote three times a day. But in making those decisions and in, in, in figuring out where to vote, where to stop, where to shop, what to eat, you, you need to be informed. How can they learn more about those choices and the impact that they have long-term on their lives and their health? Well, I mean, I think people, you know, this craving that people have uh, to get closer to their food system, I I think, you know, we've seen, again, over the last 10 or 15 years, a real uh, resurgence in learning more about food, whether it's the Food Channel or the Food Network. People are really interested in food. And to make that translate to their daily lives is is the question. We need a a bigger focus on reestablishing those culinary skills that I talked about, whether it's through home economics projects or teaching your kids at home how to cook. I mean, I think that's probably one of the most important things that uh, in terms of, of creating a more sustainable food system, we all need to sort of relearn the things that we've forgotten, the things that our grandparents knew that we've, you know, somehow decided weren't that important. But in a, in a world that, you know, where in cl- climate change is increasingly becoming more evident, where we're, um, you know, we have a, 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 an, economy, an economy that uh, fluctuates, where food prices go up and down uh, according to the stock market, we really need to find ways to make sure that we're uh, resilient to these things, that we're resilient to higher temperatures, that we're resilient to higher prices, that we're resilient to uh, an economy that, that changes from day to day. And one of the best ways to do this is by learning how to economize on food. I think there's this myth that fast food is always less expensive, and, and it's not. And, and, and when you count in Things like healthcare prices from, you know, treating diabetes or treating uh, cardiovascular disease, it becomes more and more apparent that our fast food isn't really that cheap. And so the more that we can do to, to prevent, um, you know, higher healthcare costs that happen down the line, the, the better able we'll be uh, to, to, you know, protect our pocketbooks and to protect our health. Let's go back to basics for a minute, Danielle. What role, what importance does water, clean water, have on this big picture concept that we're talking about, sustainable agriculture, not just the elimination of hunger, but in terms of making sustainable agriculture possible? Uh, And what are the big challenges that we're facing there? Well, I mean, it depends on which way you're looking at it. Our our current agricultural system of, you know, uh, monoculture crops, uh, artificial fertilizers, heavy use of pesticides and herbicides has contributed to the contamination of surface and and groundwater, uh, particularly in the United States. Uh, uh, The Gulf of Mexico experiences a dead zone every year that is roughly the size of New Jersey. Uh, This is an area where no marine life can live because it's been killed off by the chemicals that are used in agriculture. So that that's one issue. Um, and, you know, sustainable agricultural practices can really contribute to protecting uh, water resources, uh, whether you're in sub-Saharan Africa or in Iowa, using uh, different uh, practices, whether it's cover cropping that can keep, help keep uh, moisture in soils or agroforestry that, uh, you know, provides not only shade to crops, but also can increase uh, water retention in soils is very important. Um, uh, solar drip irrigation practices that allow farmers to very precisely control where water goes to crops and when are all really effective ways uh, to make uh, our food system uh, less uh, wasteful of, of the water that of our of our water resources. One of the theories that I've heard 
is specifically as it relates to soy is that soy products in Asia are very different to soy products in the United States and that you can see the effects that has in the health profiles of the population groups. Is there anything that you can share with us on that topic? Uh, I don't know much about that topic. I know um, that in the United States, a lot of our soy products are, um, unless they say that they're organic or, or non-GMO, that they're often genetically modified. But I don't know much about the health profiles of soy products in Asia or their other parts of the world. That's not my area of expertise. Is there anything that you care to share with us about the approach to sustainable agriculture and any success stories in Asia versus, say, the Americas or sub-Saharan Africa, which you've shared with us so far? I think one big uh, success story is Navdanya, which is uh, an organization that was founded by uh, the scientist Vandana Shiva. She's also uh, a really well-known food activist. And what one of the things, one of the most important things that Navdanya does is help uh, women farmers uh, collect seeds and, and seed-saving practices uh, in their communities. Uh, uh, preserving and saving seeds from year to year can be a really important way for small-scale and, and poor farmers uh, to make sure that they're uh, getting the best crops from year to year. Uh, Navdanya has a very extensive seed banking system where farmers are able to trade seeds uh, and crossbreed seeds so that they're not dependent on uh, uh, multinational companies from where they're for you know for for their crops and for where their food comes from. What country was that in? India. Okay, excellent. What would you share with our listeners in terms of uh, resources where they might? be able to learn more for those who are interested in learning about these issues of sustainable agriculture and nutrition and figuring out what to do with the food that they buy. Where, What resources would you point them at to? One of the things that Food Tank ha, uh, has been able to do this year and one of the things we're most proud of is that we built a resource database on our website, which is foodtank.org. Uh, the resource database has about 1,100 uh, resources, uh, including the websites of organizations that are uh, concerned about and doing research on, you know, sustainable and agroecological practices, uh, nutrition, uh, the, the impact that food waste can have, uh, climate change and agriculture, and other important issues. So I'd really encourage... Uh, your listeners to to check out that database on foodtank.org. For those who want to get involved in some way to participate, to sponsor or volunteer, uh, somehow take a a more personal approach, what avenues are available? Not necessarily to travel to sub-Saharan Africa, although some may want to do that and volunteer, but what options, if you could give us some, some suggestions, might be available for our audience in the United States of business people who might want to do a little bit more, maybe sponsor or, as I said, perhaps volunteer uh, or something in between? Well, I mean, I think for your audience, you have a very particular group of folks who have special skills. Um, and so instead of, you know, volunteering to uh, for a school garden or, you know, to help a school establish, uh, you know, better eating practices, I, I'd really encourage your audience to, to reach out to different organizations that they feel are worth uh, their time to lend their skills, to lend their fundraising skills, to lend their PR skills, to to lend their business skills. A lot of these organizations need help uh, writing business plans and implementing business strategies. So I think, you know, if, if folks have that sort of time and, and they want to use a skill set that they have that these groups don't, I think that would really be the most beneficial way for folks who, who don't have the time to do that sort of thing, you know, I think um, 
getting in touch with an organization in your community or that you feel is doing worthwhile work and, and donating, you know, five or 10 or $500 is an effective way to help. A lot of these organizations are scrambling for funding all the time. Uh, and, and so donating not just your time, but, you know, your, your wallet can, can really help these organizations either get off the ground or maintain uh, the good work that they're doing. Uh, and, and again, you know, whether it's uh, a couple times a month or a couple times a year, visiting uh, your local farmer's market or visiting, you know, the school in your area and seeing what you can do to help, whether it's volunteering at the farmer's market or helping, you know, break uh, the, the soil uh, so that a school can get its school garden started. Those are all effective ways for pe- people to c- become involved. Again, our, our resource database has a variety of organizations in different parts of the country and different parts of the world that folks uh, can uh, uh, get involved in and read more about. What tips, what suggestions would you share with listeners, Danielle, that they can take back to their daily lives in whatever form to further this concept that we've been discussing, how family farming can feed the world? What suggestions would you make? Well, I think I've already made them. I think, you know, getting to know your farmers uh, at the farmer's market, asking them where food comes from and, and how it was grown and, and what, you know, how, how to cook it. Farmers are often the best cooks because they are, they're growing that stuff every day and they know best how to really uh, prepare and process it. Um, getting involved, you know, knowing the issues in your community, uh, asking uh, local city council members if there is a uh, uh, a project in place to compost food scraps from restaurants so that uh, natural compost is available to community members and local farmers. Uh, you know, asking restaurants to serve uh, antibiotic-free meats and, and vegetables so that uh, local family farmers can be the source of those foods rather than multinational corporations. Asking uh uh, you know, teachers to incorporate environmental and agri- uh, agricultural uh, lessons into their lesson plans so that your kids are, are learning more about agriculture. Those are all really ways for people to become more involved and, and really support uh, uh, not just family farming, but uh, sustainable agriculture in general. Thank you, Danielle, for joining us from Chicago, Illinois. Great. Thanks so much for the opportunity. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Danielle Nirenberg, who is co-founder of Food Tank, who discussed family farming can feed the world. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.